of John, chapter 17. But those who are familiar with the Gospel of John, chapter 17, know that that's a monumentous task. So I started backing up a little bit and finally landed on chapter 13. I've titled this message, All You Need Is Love. We stand for the reading of the word, and we'll go through John's Gospel 13. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having entered, had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, here he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned him to ask who, was, who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread after I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, After the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, 
do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things which are needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of God is glorified and God is glorified in him. As God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay, lay, lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. You can have a seat. When I look at God's word, I, I think of it as we're going mining. We put on a miner's hat and helmet and we take a pickaxe and we start chipping away because in this word, there are nuggets all over the place. And it's amazing when you read the word of God and then you read it later and something new comes to you and something new comes to you. It's an amazing process that we get to participate in. Today we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. It's over a 2,000-year tradition that Christians across the globe have been taking part in his body and his blood that was broken for us. But before I start in chapter 13, I want to back up a little bit into chapter 12 and just kind of lay the groundwork for what, what was going on and what happened. So we, we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, In six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And then John 12, 3. Then Mary took upon a very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. And we go to Matthew's gospel in the 26th chapter, verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and it goes on to 27, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Let's paint the picture. Jesus came to Bethany six days before the feast. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. So he was staging his position and his disciples. Now, this is the time of the Passover. <clears throat> there are three times required under the law that everybody come to the temple. And one of, it was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Two of them being spring feasts, Passover and Pentecost, and Tabernacles being a fall feast. Jerusalem at the time had approximately 400,000 inhabitants. But when the festivals came, it swelled to almost a million inhabitants. So it was a big time. And people came 
to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And the city was filled to overflowing. Like any, any event, like you go to Daytona at the races, Daytona's kind of a quiet town, but at the races, there's throngs of people everywhere. This is what it was like. It's a huge throngs of people being there. Jesus was two miles away from Jerusalem on the way to Jerusalem. Traditionally, all the pilgrims came and traveled. Many of them had heard about Lazarus. It was what we call nowadays, Lazarus' resurrection went viral. It was all over social media at the time. So much so that many people were in Bethany to see Lazarus. Among them were the chief priests. And this is one of the parts of scripture I find quite humorous in 12th chapter of John, verse 10. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death. Also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away believing in Christ. So they planned on killing a man who had been risen from the dead. I find that quite funny. Like, death isn't, wasn't final for Lazarus, so they were going to do it again. The people were coming to the temple to do the ritual they'd been doing for thousands of years. But this Lazarus was raised from the dead. And many people were believing in Jesus. And the chief priests couldn't have that because their system would come to an end. So when the people were coming to Jerusalem, like when we're on the highway, we go by people in cars, but everybody was walking. So people got together and they banded together in groups because it was safer if there were any robbers. Along the way, they would sing psalms. Traditionally, Psalms 120 through 135, they're called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're called the Psalms of Ascent because Jerusalem's up on a hill and everybody gained elevation as they were coming up. They're also known as the Song of Degrees or the Pilgrim Songs. And everybody came and they came to the Eastern Gate. When they came to the Eastern Gate on that day, which we call Palm Sunday, but back in those days, there was... Traditionally, it was Lamb Selection Day. And on the northern side of the old city of Jerusalem, in the most eastern gate, was called the Lamb's Gate. And they brought all the lambs in that were going to be used for sacrifice in the temple. And when they did that, the Levitical priests would be over the lambs, checking them to make sure they were spotless. And when they were doing that, they also sang psalms. They saw one of them being Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are the songs they sang over the lambs as they were coming in. But on that day, on the eastern gate, Jesus is coming in along with many of the pilgrims and the people on the eastern gate are singing Psalm 118. For thousands of years, they've been rehearsing what happened on this day. This day was foretold. The angel Gabriel came to Daniel in Daniel 9, verse 25 and 26, and foretold that this day would come to the exact day. Also, Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, prophesied 500 years before that Jesus would be riding on a colt. This is the day that they came in. So now the stage is set. Jesus 
Public ministry is now over in John 13. John 13 through John 17 all happens in one evening. His public ministry is over. Now he's going to build into the, the core disciples who have been with him. And, and we look in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 17 through 19. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passovers. We're going to look at a picture that happened in, the, in this room where they had the Passover meal, Jesus' last meal, where he met with them. It was a culmination of a plan of God. It stretches all the way back to Genesis 3. And, and when you look in Revelation, as Avery read a couple of weeks ago, chapter 5 in Revelation, which is a beautiful picture of the throne room of God, and how everybody in the throne room is focused and this, this night was a very critical night in the throne room of God. And I, I, we get to see the picture of what the, upper, what the room that they had, the Passover meal is, but we don't get to see what was going on in the kingdom of God. There had been legions of armies of angels prepared to intervene if need be. Every being in the kingdom must have been focused on this, this night and what was going to happen. This is the culmination It's a powerful time. And it's the last time that Jesus is going to be spending with his disciples who still don't really know what's going to happen. He's telling them, he's telling them, he's telling them, but they can't see it. This day had been planned before the foundation of the world. Many of us read the Bible and think that, oh, oh Adam and Eve sinned and God had to come up with another plan. That was not, that was not the case. It says that the, in Revelation that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And it's, it's a beautiful picture. It says, verse 1 says in chapter 13, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With, I, don't th I think that the talk is he's talking about loving them to the end is not a he loved them to the last minute of his life, but how he loved them. He loved them eternally. He loved them infinitely. Immeasurably, inconceivably, he loved them. And John goes on to say that the devil had already put in the Judas's heart. To, to sell Jesus out. And turn to Gospel of Matthew 26, 14 through 16. And it says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, he sought to betray him. There's something significant about 30 pieces of silver. It was... Back in Exodus, 
if your bull gored someone's servant and killed them, you were to pay that person 30 pieces of silver. So they were offering the 30 pieces of silver that you would pay to a master whose servant had been killed. It was significant because Jesus is a servant. It wasn't a large sum of money that Judas was going to retire on. But Satan had put into his heart to betray him. How does he do that? How does Satan put into one of Christ's followers' heart to betray him? You know, he plants a little thought and people build resentments and things build until he, he, I don't know, I don't know his thinking. But he had the greatest opportunity in the world to be one of Christ's disciples and sold him out. And it's funny because Jesus earlier says, one of you will betray me. But actually, there were two betrayers there. Because Peter betrayed Jesus too. The difference is Peter repented. And I really believe in my heart that if Judas had gone before the Lord and said, I, I don't know what got into me, he would have been forgiven, but instead he went and took his own life. And, and John was on the right that, that Jesus was assured that Father had given him all things, all property and power, the possessor of heaven and earth and all the knowledge and authority. And in that knowledge, he gets up and takes off his robes and puts on the towel. And we have a bunch of towels prepared and a bunch of basins. Just kidding. We're not, we're not going to do that. But it's a beautiful picture that Jesus takes off his robes to wash the feet. And, and I wonder, are there things in our lives that we need to take off, that we need to put aside so we can be servants to people? That our pride, our statue, our petty disagreements, jealousy, what, what, what do we harbor in our lives that we need to disrobe of so we can serve others? This is the creator of the universe. Jesus says, I and my father are one. Ponder that for a second. John 10.30. I and my father are one. And he derobes and washes their feet. Does that mean the father is aligned with Jesus and washing their feet? The one, the, the scene in heaven in Revelation 5, no one is worthy to open the book and break its seals. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth except for one. And that one is washing feet. I wouldn't have us to wash each other's feet because that isn't enough of a stoop down. If we could go downtown and find the dirtiest homeless person we could find, that still wouldn't be enough of a stoop down. Maybe if you flew to Calcutta, India and went and found someone with sores all over them and, and, and washed their feet, I, I don't even imagine that would be enough of a step down. But he shows this humility that he has. Because Jesus didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He came as a servant to us and to his father. 
He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father says. It's very humble. And when it comes to Peter, Peter goes, Peter, who on the road to Caesarea Philippi says, you are God. You are the Son of God. You are the living God. He knows who he is. He says, you can't wash my feet. You're, you're God. But Christ tells him, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have a part of me. He says, you're already clean, but your feet are dirty. And I see that as the feet is a contact point place of this world. When we get involved in the world, we get dirty from the world. But we're clean. We're already clean, he says, except one of you. The one who sold them out. And then Jesus goes on and to say, John 12, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, do they need to run down to the temple and tell the chief priests, pull, pull the tablets out, we need to etch number 11 in there? They don't. Because there's a new thing happening here. And Jeremiah writes about it, and it's listed in Hebrews 10:16. This is my covenant that I will make with them. After those days, say the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Ezekiel says the same thing in chapter 36. I'm going to take your heart of stone out and I'll put a heart of flesh in. The law was written on stone. The New Testament law is written on flesh. And he's telling us the new commandment I give to you is you love one another. Most of us are older in this room and we remember the 60s. On June 25th in 1967, the Beatles played to a satellite TV audience of over 400 million people in 25 countries, five continents. Back in 67, that was a big deal. The Soviets had launched Sputnik not even 10 years before that. And the first television broadcast from space only occurred five years before that. This was a huge, huge event that they linked all these countries together and they had this brand new song that John Lennon penned. All you need is love, 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 love. Love is all you need, they proclaimed. Many remember 1967 was known as the summer of love. What most of us don't know is there were over 160 riots in America during the summer of love. The following year, 1968, we saw the assassination of Martin Luther King, of Robert Kennedy, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, and the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Where's all that love that the Beatles sang about? What kind of love was the Beatles singing about? 
Is Jesus talking about the same love that the Beatles are singing about? Should our love be based on any kind of selfishness? I love you because it makes me feel good. I love you because I get something out of it. What motivates us to love or not love our fellows? All this is quite superficial. We're called to love each other because Christ commanded us to love each other. Jesus said, as I have loved you. Paul writes in Corinthians chapter 13, love seeks not its own. This kind of love is far from this selfish love. Like, where's the payout in me loving you? How can we muster up that love? How can we muster up the kind of love that the creator of the universe has for us? I don't think we can. But if we look in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 5, It says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So that love that we're to have one for another only can come from the Holy Spirit. We're not capable of it. In ourselves. The spirit of God. The apostles after the crucifixion. They were all hiding. They were locked in a room. And then Jesus came to them. After he was resurrected. He commanded them. They needed to do something. They needed to wait. And on that day. It says they were all together together in Acts 2. They were all together together. They were all in one place of one mind. And a rushing wind came in. And the world has never been the same. They burst out on the streets of Jerusalem, not hiding anymore, in power and authority. So much suffering goes, these men are drunk. Look at them, they're crazy. They're filled with the Spirit. Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to repentance and accept Christ. Being filled with the Spirit. If you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit or not, there's a fuel gauge. It's located in Galatians 5. You live in this way, this is fleshly. You live in this way, you're in the Spirit. It's a good time for all of us to go and check our fuel gauges and find out where we are. The beautiful thing is, Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, love is. Take a, take a moment and sometime and open that chapter up and where it says love, plug your name in and see how you're doing. Eddie is patient. Eddie is kind. Eddie hardly ever notices when others do it wrong. Wow. 
I can't on my own live up to that. But God has given us the Holy Spirit. I have four, four scriptures here, <clears throat> starting with Colossians 3, that we can glean something from. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Again, in Ephesians 4, chapter 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And in Romans 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And finally, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. We are to love as Jesus loved. It's only possible by the Spirit. We're to love selfishly, selflessly. The Lord was totally disinterested in any benefits to himself and his love. Or to love sacrificially. His love cost him something. You can't love someone without it costing. Forgivingly. Jesus was doubted, betrayed, and forsaken. Yet he loved us to the end. A love that's indifferent to personal gain. With no concern about personal satisfaction or fulfillment. The world will know us by our love one for another. Not by how we dress on Sunday. Not by our bumper stickers or what we say. But how we treat one another. And how we treat others. How many Christians have been worldly seeking some kind of a benefit. And giving God's church a black eye. <clears throat> Churches, when, when Christ said to Peter... Upon you I will build my church. He didn't say, on you I will build my synagogue or my temple. He used a Greek word, ekklesia. And ekklesia is a, a gathering. It was among, used among the Greeks as a, a governing body to discuss the affairs of state. We're to be involved in society. We're not to be a church inside a building. Somehow in America, a church has become a building. We are the church. Wherever you go, there is the church. And in this day and age, we're to be light in this world. This is a dark world out there. There are very confused people. But how are they to know us? By our love. Do we, do we have that love? 
Are we practicing those things? You know, <clears throat> what I loved about 17 and why I wanted to go to John 17 because it was because of this thing, this point that Jesus, part of the prayer that Jesus prays. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus is praying for us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unless I'm missing something, it sounds like Jesus is inviting us into the love that he shares with the Father. He's inviting us into that unique relationship that he has with the Father. Think about that for a second. <clears throat> I think a lot of us think that God is petty, like we're petty. Like, oh, I didn't go to church Sunday. Oh, Lord's not going to hear my prayer. Whatever the thought is, God's not petty. Love hardly notices when others do it wrong. We notice all the time. Many of us have a, I have a list. <laughs> Ask my wife. I, I have a list, multiple lists. True demonstration of loving is serving. And it says in verse 12, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, he sat down again. He said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. When you come here to church, you'll notice the building is clean. The trash cans are emptied. There's food prepared downstairs. The floors are vacuumed. All sorts of details have been taken care of. <clears throat> Many times they're taken care of by somebody who you know nothing of. They just come on their own and do it. They come and serve. They're not standing up here and we're giving them awards for sweeping the floor, for washing the counters, for picking up trash, for doing anything. They serve silently. That is the demonstration of love. You know, I wonder if we take a moment and mentally look around the room. Are there people in your family are there people in this church that you have a petty resentment over? Is there somebody you don't like because they parked in your parking space or they took your pastry? <laughs> We're that petty. I'm that petty. 
If I'm that petty, maybe some of you are. And I don't like somebody because they remind me of somebody who beat me up in third grade. I don't know all these things. But imagine sitting before the holy God and telling him, what? they parked right in my spot, Lord. I can't see him seeing in the light of eternity. Is there really anything that is so important that we shouldn't love one another as he commanded us? Lord, I couldn't love them. They sat in my seat. In Proverbs 19.11 it says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory to overlook a transgression. Love hardly notices when others do it wrong. I, as much as anybody in this room, needs to repent from our pettiness. That if we want the Lord to do some work in this church that's amazing, that's awesome, that these pews are filled, that people are getting healed and delivered and the Holy Spirit's here, we need to follow Christ's commandment that we love one another. You know, we have food downstairs and it's a wonderful time of fellowship. If you're new here, please join us downstairs. It's a way to get to know everybody in fellowship. And it's great. And I love that about this church. That fellowship is fun. And I love the work details and all that we did over the last, well, six months of being here. Everybody worked together and you get to know people and you get to labor together. And like those pilgrims walking to Jerusalem, they spent quality time together. A lot of us don't get to do that. We come in and out and, and, and that's all we see of each other. But the Lord has called us to love one another. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Greg invited people to be prayed for, for to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not going to make you a prophet or speaking in some foreign language or doing weird things, but it's going to give you the ability to carry out these commandments that are not possible for our flesh to do because in me there is no good thing except Jesus Christ and the Lord says if you know these things blessed are you if you do them humble people love the humbler you are the less interested you are in yourself This kind of love in its pure form is complete commitment to the joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment of others. At any cost, at any point, any sacrifice. And that's the kind of love we're called to demonstrate. Spirit-filled people are able to do this. So take a moment is there anything we need to repent of? Any feelings like that? Do we need to say, Lord, just fill me with your spirit. Give me love for that person. That person that I really kind of avoided. Let me spend time with them. Let me just pour into them that love. After all, we're going to be spending eternity together. So we should be practicing that love for one another here. And I know this is, was a, this is a hard message to bring. 
But it's what Christ called us to love one another. Why should love be such a hard message? The Beatles just sang away. 400 million people. Love, love, love. Love is all you need. I'm saying the same thing. But not that same kind of love. The love that Christ showed us. The love that only the Holy Spirit can empower us to do. Shall we pray? Father, I, I thank you for this time, Lord. It's so beautiful, your message, Lord. Your, your love is so pure, Lord. They spit at you and they pulled your beard out and they, they beat you and they, Lord, things that human beings can't endure. And yet you love them to the end and you loved us to the end, Lord. For as that song says, as I hear my voice among the scoffers, Lord. Forgive us for our petty things, Lord, that we've hung on to, Lord. We just fill us with your spirit that love would just pour out of this place, Lord, that this building wouldn't be able to contain the love that you have, Lord. And it says, if you're lifted up, you will draw all men to you, Lord. And we thank you for this day, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we're going to go on to having our communion. Dave, if you come up. And in Matthew's gospel, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit from the vine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What a glorious Lord's Supper that will be. And Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, this, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though we are many, are one bread and one body for we all partake of that one bread. In Jesus' name, amen.
to close with this one thing. And Zechariah in prophesying about the temple he says not by might not by power but my spirit saith the Lord. Many of us have heard that. Not by might it's not by any military might or force not by power not by any economic power by my spirit, says the Lord. And Zechariah had this beautiful vision of these olive trees that were feeding, like an automatic process, olive trees were feeding oil and the lamp was burning. The lamp is the word of God. It is by the word of God that we will win. And by being in love, we will demonstrate who he is. So love one another, brothers and sisters, 
They're going to close in a, in a song. And thank you for bringing such a sweet spirit today. And, and the Lord bless you and keep you today. Amen.